Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our online events, including on January 27th, a debate on Brexit, co-sponsored with the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University. Coming up on the show today, Bruce Ragsdale, author of the new book, Washington at the Plough, The Founding Farmer and the Question of Slavery. Uh, Bruce, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, of course, we're, we're used to Washington on horseback. Uh, so why is he at the plough? Well, um, at the plough, the title refers to the celebration of Washington um, as the Cincinnatus of America, of, of the image of Cincinnatus at the plough, which had stood as, as a symbol of civic virtue. And um, of course, recalling the, the Roman um, a general who had rejected an offer of arbitrary power so that he could return to life as um, as a farmer. And when Washington resigns from his commission as general in the uh, Continental Army and goes back to farming, he's celebrated in both Europe and America as, as uh, Cincinnatus. And the plow becomes the great symbol of his um, return to civilian life and his service um, um, as, as a, a, a private citizen. Um, I mean, it's it's one of the interesting things. This is not just a, a retirement gig for him, is it? You, at the very beginning of the book, you show how even amidst the tensions of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, uh, we find Washington uh, out and about talking to farmers about things like buckwheat. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. His mind is never very far away from farming. Even during the Revolutionary War, he will, um, when he's in winter encampments, he will be talking with people about um, methods of farming in other parts of, of the states. Um, he's um, talking about it when he's president. He's constantly thinking about farming back at Mount Vernon. When he travels as president on his several um, tours of, of the nation, he, he takes he takes as much time um, observing the farming and writing about farming in different regions as he does on the political climate um, on those tours. So farming is, it's, it's, it's very much a part of his identity. He also sees it as part of um, the, the, what he is offering the new nation is that the um, kind of innovative and experimental farming that he's instituted at Mount Vernon, he hopes will be an example for um, um, other Americans. Yeah, it's, it's actually one of the things that I found really interesting and persuasive about the book, that uh, it's very easy to have the image of Washington as someone who uses farming as, as a way to escape from the burdens of generalship and office and, and command and so on. But actually, you show in the book that that he sees agricultural improvement uh, and the work of nation building and so on, that these things are actually joined together in his mind. Uh, very much so. And I think that's true from the very beginning of his life as a full-time farmer, which really I date to 1759 when he returns from his service in the Seven Years' War and as assumes that he's going to be a farmer and planter for the rest of his life. But he is, always has his mind on the larger questions of the political economy of an agricultural um, society. And um, I think if there's one unifying um, theme to his um, um, various kinds of farming throughout his life was that he was always thinking about the place of first Virginia and then the United States within 
um, a, a larger Atlantic world in a post-imperial order or a post, at least a post-mercantilist order, and that he's thinking about the kinds of opportunities that will um, serve uh, both the United States and other nations um, in, in that um, post-mercantilist order. That's part of what ties him to a lot of agricultural improvement um, advocates in Great Britain as well, who also want to see um, a, a new order among the nations after um, American independence. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, exactly as you say, that he sees agricultural stewardship of the land as not being just about America's future prosperity, but it's also about finding a way to ensure peace with Europe, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And it, it sounds a little vague at times when they talk about it, but um, Washington and, and particularly his British um, and, and occasionally um, French correspondents, they talk about agricultural improvement as a shared project. They see it as a transnational project. They put a great deal of emphasis on um, um, the sharing and exchange of agricultural knowledge. Um, but they also talk about it as um, the foundation of a new era of peace. Um, that, that it was an old mercantilist order that pitted these nations against one another rather than allowed them to exchange their reciprocal advantages. And there's a sense that somehow agricultural improvement is above um, national jealousies. Um, some people like his correspondent in, in, um, from Scotland, Sir John Sinclair, says exactly that, that this is um, a topic where um, nations will be able to cooperate without um, uh, leading, leading to conflict or war. And it is interesting as well how that finds its way so regularly into his language. It doesn't matter whether he's talking about the the cultivation of the republic, the cultivation of peace, whether he's talking about the harvest uh, and so on, that his political language is actually suffused with this kind of imagery. Absolutely. I mean, when he talks about that we have a new field uh, um, um, ahead of us um, and, and cultivating it, um, and that he sees also in more practical terms, or a particular program of agricultural improvement, he thinks is essential for the respectability and prosperity of, of, um, of the new United States trade um, with the rest of the Atlantic world. So many people will have visited uh, Mount Vernon, but, but describe it to us. What, what was Washington's farm, Washington's estate? Uh, what was it actually like when he was living there? Um, well, it, it's it's a very large estate, um, especially in terms of the amount of land that is cultivated. Um, he begins when um, with about 2,500 acres by um, the mid-1780s after he returns from um, service in the uh, Revolutionary War. He's expanded it to over 8,000 acres. About 3,500 acres of that is um, cultivated. Um, and he has divided it into usually into five different farms. One is around his mansion house and uh, that is somewhat like what the um, British would have called a home farm where there was a display of experiment and um, but the other four farms were very much um, devoted to commercial agriculture. Um, he quite early um, 1765 he moves away from tobacco the traditional uh, cash crop of Virginia um, and he becomes a wheat farmer and and by uh, the evolution he has over a thousand acres um, planted in wheat, which is a tremendous amount. And that would rank with larger um, British estates as well. Um, 
But the other thing that that I think um, visitors would have most noted was how much he, how much attention Washington paid to the aesthetic vision of the estate and the aesthetic plan of the estate, very much again following British models of trying to break down the barriers between the park immediately around the house and the working parts of the farm. He he constructs vistas that would have um, allowed people to see from the uh, mansion house to the working parts of the farm. Um, he wants to um, Im improve just the look of the landscape. He, he uh, institutes uh, these hedgerows, which were very uncommon in um, uh, the United States at that time, but obviously were um, typical of, of British estates at that time. And um, his, his idea is that, that, there, that this would be a kind of ornament and display. And, and visitors noticed it looked different from any other estate, particularly any other estate in Virginia, where European visitors were often horrified at just how um, slovenly the, the land looked and how um, ill-repaired fences were. But um, Mount Vernon people thought looked more like a European estate. There was one visitor said he couldn't believe Washington hadn't been to Europe because he had so thoroughly absorbed these um, ideals of, of design of the la landscape. Um, an, an English visitor said that compares it to uh, the work of Capability Brown. Um, again, a sense that, that for agricultural improvement to work, to actually be an example, it needs to be presented on a kind of, of stage. Yeah, it's interesting because it, I mean, it really does speak to that 18th century world of letters, doesn't it? That, as you say, he constantly seems to be looking to Britain, to France, to Europe generally for modern practice. And I, I found it very striking that uh, you make the argument in the book that really in agriculture, we see Washington as an imaginative figure, perhaps more outward going in, in ways that we don't say in politics or, uh, or in, in general. Uh, there's no question. I, I think you see him as more innovative, more experimental. You also see just a side of Washington that, that isn't that familiar even to people who knew him well at the time if they didn't know him as a farmer. Someone of enormous intellectual curiosity. Um, and um, I think it can't be emphasized enough that initially his knowledge of agriculture and new kinds of farming in the years before the Revolutionary War um, is based almost entirely on his reading in, in British agricultural treatises. He builds up one of the most impressive libraries of these new of this new generation of agricultural treatises published in Great Britain. Um, and he has one of the largest and um, uh, libraries in Virginia. And that's what um, really introduces him to this culture. He later becomes an active um, correspondent with agricultural leaders in Great Britain, but initially it's through books. Um, and he never gives that up. He relies very, at each stage in um, introducing new kinds of farming, he first turns to books to learn learn about them. He takes extensive notes into these paper-bound notebooks that he could carry with him in, in his pocket when he rode to um, the farms. And he has some, on the, the, the very complicated uh, and controversial issue of slavery, uh, you, you look at how uh, Washington, uh, when he's thinking about enslaved labor, how he kind of sees the future going forward as being part of improvement, that, that the end of enslaved labor and agricultural improvement seem to go hand in hand for him. Eventually. I think one of the um, um, uh, 
surprises that I found in, in this book, writing this book was um, there's been generally been an assumption that Washington was um, less committed to slavery once he transitions from tobacco to wheat. That's certainly not true at all. He very uh, much is at the forefront of adapting enslaved labor to um, grain farming, diversified farming. He increases the number of, of enslaved people through purchase mostly. Um, but then after the Revolutionary War, when he has first said, he famously said during the war that he wanted to get quit of Negroes. He wanted to stop being a manager of enslaved labor. And that and a couple of references, particularly to Lafayette, that he supported some notion of gradual abolition had has always led people to think that he was somehow disengaging from slavery. Um, whereas I found it was quite the opposite, that in 1785, when he introduces this much more elaborate, complicated system of British husbandry, um, he tries to make it work with slavery. And it's only after he decides that um, that slavery and that kind of enlightened agriculture and a new kind of more benevolent rural order are, are incompatible that he turns um, and starts thinking about ways to um, free the enslaved. But that doesn't come until at least 1793. And I think that's much later than people um, had previously um, thought. And the, the implication seems to be that this is less of a moral or an ethical issue, but more simply that ending enslaved labour was a road to agricultural improvement. It is, but it's not just in, in sort of um, um, easily measured practical terms. It's not in terms of output of of. of of, of labor. Um, there is, he is committed to an ideal of rural um, life. It's what the English at the time would have thought of as a Georgic ideal, that the countryside could be improved by human learning and human um, um, endeavor. Um, and initially he thinks he can do that with slavery. It's almost, he thinks he, he's not the only person who thinks like this, but he talks about um, improving slavery, that he can somehow make it a more benevolent, less brutal institution. And that it's only later that he realizes that is absolutely not um, possible. Um, but I should also say that even at the time that Washington returns to Mount Vernon after the Revolutionary War, even some of the um, most notable advocates of abolition in both the United States and in Great Britain often talked about, criticized slavery in terms of, of its um, economic inefficiency um, and um, wastefulness. Um, even people like Wilberforce, it's not, um, it's not just the, the more emotional religious arguments that we'd find in the 19th century. There was a sense that somehow slavery was um, um, would not serve um, this, this more benevolent and enlightened rural order. And what about the decision to free his enslaved uh, labourers once, uh, kind of on his death? Yes, well, that comes only after he spends a long time trying to make work this, this really quite improbable plan where he wanted to turn his um, his farms, the four farms that are dedicated to commercial farming, he wants to turn them over to very accomplished British farmers who would somehow rely on um, free labor that they would either bring or that they would somehow hire um, uh, freed enslaved people. Washington is, is never specific about how this is going to happen. But those are the steps he initially takes after he comes to that resolution when he famously says that he wants to liberate a certain species of property. But it's only after um, 
the failure of that plan, the inability to, to lease those farms to um, um, uh, experienced British farmers, that he then turns to um, the emancipation through his um, will. And it, it, it still is a very complicated story because in the la last few months of his life, after he'd written um, his will, um, he's still trying to figure out ways to um, profitably employ the growing number of enslaved people under his control. He has a plan that is just a few months away is, is thinking of, of relocating a number of enslaved laborers to um, lands he owns in the West. Um, but there seems by then he seems to have abandoned any idea that he would free them during his lifetime and that it would only happen through his will. And it's interesting. I mean, you, you make the argument that that he remains in many ways as as elusive as elusive in this decision as as in so much of his politics. That, uh, as you point out, the decision was unanticipated by the public, uh, and as you say, its implications were not entirely clear to them either. It was not at all clear, um, and he never makes a statement um, in opposition to slavery in pub a public statement. Um, for some context for that, uh, he, he, he avoids getting ahead of um, sort of the public on any issue. Um, I mean, it's, I, I've always found it striking that um, Washington cared about nothing so much as establishing a strong federal union following the Revolutionary War. No, there was no um, greater advocate of a new federal constitution. Um, but of course, he, he, he plays the role of president of that convention, which means he plays almost no part in the deliberations. And he never makes, um, he never plays a, a public role in the ratification debates. Um, it's just, he thinks that his example will have enormous influence. And I think in some ways he, he believed that his example in regard to slavery would also have enormous influence. But of course it didn't. And um, I think one of the, the saddest and most striking um, um, aspects of the story is that um, um, Washington's provisions for emancipation are met largely with silence by um, other enslavers. Um, it's, it's of course celebrated by a number of abolitionists, particularly black abolitionists. Um, but um, there's very little comment about um, Washington's ac actions among white Virginians, even, uh, either in public or, and certainly not um, uh, in, in private, and certainly not in public. And and worse even than that, as you as you show, the state assembly even uh, inst institutes actions to make sure that the same thing can't really happen again. Absolutely. By the time Washington writes his will, the, um, the assembly had steadily limited the ability to manumit um, enslaved people. The, the first um, act um, permitting individual acts of manumission was in 1782. Um, and almost immediately, there are people who are trying to restrict that. And by the 1790s, after a couple of very large um, manumissions, most famously Robert Carter, uh, which is probably the largest single emancipation before um, the 1860s, um, the assembly is making it harder and harder um, and putting some restrictions on it. Washington, it's, it is telling though that in his will, he very scrupulously counters every single one of those possible challenges to someone's emancipation. Um, he makes that almost ironclad. And, um, and that would include um, the often controversial um, decision um, to delay emancipation until after the death of, of Martha Washington. 
Um, whereas, in fact, there had been a law passed in the mid 1790s that allowed a widow or the family of a, of a widow to um, challenge an act of emancipation um, and to claim um, a dower right to one third of the enslaved. And I have no evidence that Washington was responding to that, but it is an example of every restriction that the Virginia Assembly had placed on emancipation. Washington answers in his will. Um, the only provision before the emancipation is that all his debts um, be paid off. His debts were not substantial, but under a recent act of the assembly, um, anyone, any creditor of an estate could um, just claim um, that, that their um, debt be paid in um, enslaved property. And so it's just one more example of how Washington is making sure no one can challenge the provisions of that will. Yeah, and I suppose the, the reaction in Virginia is, is part of the reason why subsequently he gets presented as a, a, a much more enlightened figure than uh, those that, that lived around him. But, but you have a, a really interesting section at the, at the end of the book where you show how in the 19th century, Washington is presented almost as not being a slaveholder at all. He's depicted in these uh, kind of pastoral scenes and so on that uh, are more as if he's living on a commune than a, than, a, than a slave estate. Yes, absolutely. I mean, those images are, are there aren't that many that uh, for the most part, Washington is, is presented without any connection with, um, with slavery. But when it is, he is presented in the context of slavery, it's this benevolent um, order that gives no indication of either his role as an emancipator or, um, or as an innovator in terms of, of using enslaved labor for agricultural improvement. Um, and and those, those images are very widespread. The most famous ones, including the one that is on the cover of the book, were done by Northern artists. And um, it was a commitment to Washington as this symbol of union. But there are people like Frederick Douglass, for example, who absolutely skewer that uh, that image. Absolutely, not just Douglass, but other abolitionists as well. And Henry Highland Garnett did the same thing. And there, there's an um, imagined dialogue uh, written in the 1850s by an abolitionist of, of between George Washington and Toussaint Louverture in um, uh, in Haiti, and um, it does not present Washington in a positive. Uh, role at all. Uh, you know, this coming from um, um, a dedicated abolitionist. I mean, you you talk about the standing of of, of someone like Washington and, and the founding fathers more generally. I, I wonder what you think about the debate which is going on at the moment and which this book contributes to. What we where where do we stand on the founders on uh, people like Washington? Do you think? Well, Washington is is the exception because he does. Um, free the enslaved. And he may have done it very late and he may have done it in a way that didn't have um, the influence that a lot of people thought it might have at the time. Um, but he does, uh, and he stands pretty much alone in that regard. Uh, of the prominent founders who owned a significant number of enslaved laborers who depended on enslaved laborers, Washington's the only one who um, provides for their freedom, but it's a very mixed legacy. And um, I, I in, in part because he was so slow to do it and had tried so hard to make slavery work in another in another fashion. Um, um, and then it's a complicated emancipation where over half the people at Mount Vernon are not his to emancipate. They are owned by the Custis family. And so it, it was a very messy, very 
um, emotionally disturbing um, a separation of, of enslaved families. So it makes it a very mixed legacy. Um, but at the same time, Washington, he not only emancipates the enslaved, um, in contrast to a number of the people who think emancipation must be tied up to expatriation, he clearly um, which which includes Jefferson, to, we should say. Jefferson's the top of the top of the. I mean, with the exception of a few um, brief statements in the 1780s, Washington Jefferson had always said that emancipation could only um, uh, come if it was accompanied by expatriation. Um, and also a number of people in the 1790s, you're starting to get more proposals for um, expatriation. Um, Washington clearly um, not only expects the, enslaved, the freed enslaved people to remain in the community, but he also goes much further than the law required to ensure that they would have some means of self-support. Um, he, he provides that the orphans uh, or th those without um, parents would be given the same benefits as white orphans would get in terms of, um, of um, training in some uh, trade and also being taught to, to read and write. Um, and that was not required by law at all. Um, but um, I think Washington does it also in part to make sure that um, he would never be embarrassed by these um, individuals being returned to some form of servitude, which the law allowed. If, if um, freed slaves could not pay a certain um, minimal tax, they could be um, uh, placed under some kind of indentured servitude. And Washington makes sure that will not happen with um, the people that he emancipates. Do you think that's one of the reasons why Washington's st standing and, and interest in Washington as well seems to have, have increased over the last you know, 10, 20 years? That, you know, kind of before that time, he was always seen as a somewhat dull figure, more of a figurehead Absolutely. perhaps. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, it's, yeah. it's increasingly become obvious that that was not the case. And, and, and your book throws more light on this, this kind of very complex character, actually. Uh, I, I hope it does. I, I, um, I think the, the best compliment people have given me about the book is that it complicates the story of Washington. And um, Washington was always seen, he was such an important political symbol, both in his own lifetime and then particularly in the 19th century, um, that it was often hard to chip away at that, as it were, through the, the marble figure and see the real person. And he also, um, he presents himself in a, um, in a in a much more restrained way in public than um, he did in private, and I think when you look at his private life, and and that's what so intrigues me about his life as a farmer, because there's someone here who's who's much more animated and um, original in his thinking uh, than we normally associate um, Washington with. So the book is Washington at the Plough, The Founding Farmer and the Question of Slavery. It's written by my guest, Bruce Ragsdale, and published by Belknap Press. But for now, Bruce, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me on. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.